Good morning, friends. Our first scripture reading today comes in the form of call and response. So please join Ben and me in a responsive reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, as printed in your bulletins. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teach and admonish each other in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, the Father through Him. Amen. Here ends our first reading. Our second scripture reading comes from Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. You may follow along silently in your bulletin. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them, who are you to pass judgment on one another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it for the Lord. Also those who eat, eat for the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain for the Lord and give thanks to God. For we do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will be held accountable. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. To God be the glory for the wonderful things that God has done. For that that we anticipate God to do in this preaching hour, and even for that that God is doing right now. What a mighty God we serve. 
I bring you greetings on behalf of the Board of Trustees, faculty, staff, and students of Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton Theological Seminary, an institution of the Reformed Church, also known as the Seminary of the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Where we are committed to training men and women to living lives and developing ministries of faith and intellect, joy and compassion. And it is so great to be here with you today and particularly look throughout this congregation and see so many alums and fellow classmates of that institution. When your pastor, Reverend Sundermeyer, asked me if I would be willing to come join you today on this homecoming Sunday, I told him, how quickly can I book the ticket? Because this is not just your homecoming, whether you realize it or not, this is homecoming for me. Atlanta is my city. Atlanta is my home. And while I love Princeton, New Jersey, <laughs> it's so good to be in a community that nobody looks at me strange because of the ways that I conjugate my pronouns, y'all. <laughs> I can say I'm fixing to do something, and y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. For this is the city, this is the town that nurtured me, me and my wife, Cecily. This is the place of love and tenderness right down I-20 that shaped us and molded us. And anything good that we are, we give credit to God and to the precious tender people of this state and of Atlanta, Georgia. Am I a true Atlantean? I'm telling you. I'm, I'm TBS Superstation old. <laughs> when it wasn't anything but the Braves and Ric Flair. <laughs> and it's so good to be back here with you in this city. And just not only because the fact it's just good to be back, but also the fact that I was able to come in and I'm able to spend time this weekend. I am a proud graduate before Princeton Theological Seminary of Morehouse College here in Atlanta. And it does my heart so good that Cecily and I were able to have our daughter come, our daughter Zora Neal, and she's currently a sophomore at Spelman College, and she's joined us here this morning. And so, again, this is homecoming. So Pastor Sundermeyer, thank you. We go back multiple decades, and we were classmates, friends, and Tony is now who he was then, prepared committed to the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> and knows to take directions from Katie. <laughs> 
I would also like to acknowledge a longtime friend, longtime friends who were here, longtime friends of mine, and I know longtime friends of yours. And that's George and Barbara Worth, who are here with us at homecoming today. We've read and heard the scripture from the lectionary text of the week. I would just emphasize the first couple of verses of that Romans text. Romans chapter 14 from the lectionary for the week. Accept the one whose faith is weak. Accept them without quarreling over disputable petty matters. Yes, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak, they may eat only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat the other one with contempt who does not, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge another servant? Who are you? to judge another's servant. Elevating empathy. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I need your help. Amen. My friends, like many, like many academics, I spend the summer months catching up on my reading. This year, I sought to expand my intellectual palette. In addition to my go-to nonfiction and historical fiction, such as Will William New Deal Cedar's book, Fins, on the rise of General Motors and the glory days of Detroit, or the new Martin Luther King Jr. biography by Jonathan Icke, this summer I decided to pick up the genre of science fiction. Specifically, I read the work of Octavia Butler and her famous parable series, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Written three decades ago in the early and mid-1990s, Butler sets the scene in California in the year 2024. The author eerily describes an America crumbling under climate change, reeling from gross economic inequality, victimized by racialized and gender-based violence. The extreme heat of privatization has scorched social bonds. The blind ideology of free market fundamentalism has undercut any sense of the common good, and the scarcity of resources among the masses has led to a dog-eat-dog, -dog, rabid individualism. Of course, cynicism sets in. Inevitably, anarchy ensues. 
And a clear conceptual thread connects these two novels, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Octavia Butler wants us to wrestle with power, or in other words, the deformities of power. How power operates, how power is molded, how power is deployed. And Butler uses these novels to critique the seeming human penchant for us to view power and deploy power only as power over another. Power over. This is what she wants us to consider. Power over the environment to use and abuse at our will. Power over others to exploit labor and hoard material resources. Political power over the most vulnerable by playing on their fears and manipulating desires. And even power over one another when we leverage race, gender, sexuality, religion, or even our educational accomplishments to distinguish ourselves from and rank ourselves above somebody else. Oh, we're all guilty. This desire for perverted forms of power, this need for deformed forms of recognition, the longing to distinguish ourselves from them, a search for meaning and purpose at the expense of somebody else. But to subvert this vicious cycle, Butler offers a counterexample. The novel's primary protagonist, Lauren Alamina, she's born with a fictional medical condition. The author calls it hyper-empathy. <laughs> hyper-empathy syndrome. Hyper-empaths, also known as sharers, they literally feel the experiences and sensations of others. If Lauren sees a person or an animal wounded, she feels the pain. If she witnesses someone experiencing pleasure, she feels the euphoria and joy. And with this condition, Butler introduces a different use of power. For she asks us, what might our world look like if we had to literally feel the pain and or the joy of those who are around us. How might we use our power differently? This hyper-empathy for Olamina, it's a gift. She has this extraordinary ability to feel, this amazing capability to identify, this extraordinary capacity of sharing in the joints and pains and others. But like all gifts, our blessings can also constitute a burden. This was the case for Olamina. So she began to understand how she could cut off her hyper-empathy. She grew to understand that if she didn't see somebody else's pain, then she didn't have to experience it. If she could just block her vision from what somebody else is going through, then she could evade the shared sensation. What one can take away from this condition is this. If empathy is tied to sight, then one can deduce that our lack of empathy comes from our refusal to see. Not an inability to see, a refusal 
to see. And sometimes I wonder, my friends, how often we refuse to see one another to protect ourselves. I want to cut off this hyper-empathy. I want to pull the plug on identifying with others' hopes, hurts, dreams, and joys. The weights become too heavy, thus we put on blinders. For some of us, it's ideological blinders. We become so entrenched in particular political worldviews that we cannot see anyone whose feelings do not wholly align with our own political blinders. For some of us, it's religious blinders. We become so committed to a particular doctrine of God that we erase or cancel anyone who does not adhere or confirm. In other words, in the words, as one writer put it, it's evident when we've created God in our own image because God hates all the same people we do. (laughs) (laughs) And for some of us, it's aspirational blinders. We've become so committed to a particular narrow definition of success getting into the right school, landing the right job, living in the right neighborhood, so much so that our chase becomes a delusional, blinding narcotic. By putting on such blinders, we eradicate others from our line of sight. We short-circuit our capacity to develop deep and meaningful relationships at any spiritual or human level. Blinders. And from here, first prayers, it's a dangerous and downward spiral. For once we willfully fail to see someone, it's a quick and easy path to framing the other negatively. And when we frame others negatively, we can begin justifying treating them poorly. One has to wonder if this is the dynamic going on in this morning's text. In today's epistle, Paul is addressing a nascent community of Jesus' followers in Rome. Some were fellow Jews who had embraced the teachings of Jesus. Some were so-called Gentiles who found hope and inspiration in this alternative theological and social vision. Yet all were feeling crushed under the iron feet of imperial oppression. Nevertheless, the community... They had begun to lose sight of this shared profession of faith. They were losing sight of the reasons that the teachings of Jesus attracted them in the first place. One might suggest suggest that they were becoming increasingly guilty of mission drift. They had started to turn their theological weapons against one another. And how many of you realize that during times of social conflict, during times of cultural pressure, during times of stress and strife, it's easier to attack those who are closest to us than confront the true problems that often impale us. That's why often we mask our insecurities with piety. 
We conceal our vulnerabilities with assertions of power. We veil our anxiety by reinforcing our place in the pecking order. In psychoanalysis, this dynamic is often referred to as the narcissism of minor differences. That is to say, the more we share in common, the more we attempt to prove our dissimilarities with one another. Oh, he eats meat. <laughs> We're vegan. Wait, you heard about their kids, right? You know what their kids are going through. They're just putting them through, child. Oh, I know you heard about her husband. Oh, he's a nice guy and all. But I did hear he was Baptist. This is what we have going on within this early Christian community. They started to pull spiritual rank on one another. They're majoring in minors. So Paul attempts to redirect their vision. Paul uses this letter to bring them back to the one in whom all their lives can find true purpose and meaning. Paul takes them back. Take off the blinders. For instance, in chapter 13 of the epistle, last week's lectionary text that Pastor Sundermeyer addressed with such homiletic sophistication last week. We see Paul seeking to steer them back to the first principles of their faith. He hearkens back to Jesus' teachings, a story that we can now read in Matthew 22. Recall it was when an insecure religious group of leaders approached Jesus and they asked him a question. They say, teacher, which commandment of the law is the greatest? Of course, this is a disingenuous trick question. There are over 600 laws recorded in the tradition. But Jesus, he doesn't appeal to legalese. He appeals to love and compassion. Jesus brackets the religious argument to point to the relationship that God has called us into. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on all. These two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Love, compassion, empathy. But remember, empathy begins with our compassion and our ability to see. We cannot compare. We cannot have compassion toward those whom we fail to recognize. Similar is true with tenderness and empathy. We cannot identify with those who do not exist. So as long as you and I can live in a state of plausible denial concerning the pains, problems, perils, and perplexities of those around us, then we can opt for an existence of blissful ignorance. Egoistic self-absorption and myopic solipsism render us sinfully short-sighted. And we end up acting and sounding like this community in this morning's text.
But as I prepare to take my seat, I want to say it would be easy if I could just end this sermon here. It would be easy if this sermon was just about our compassion and empathy toward others or our need for compassion and empathy toward others. If I could just wag my finger and say, love your neighbor as yourself. But the truth is this, I've met few people in life who are genuinely cold-hearted apathetic and indifferent. I've met few who opt for evil and prefer anger over empathy. And this leads me to believe, Sister Katie, that there's something else going on in the human condition. There's something else going on that causes us to opt for apathy and indifference over kindness and compassion. And the question I want to pose to us this morning that I'm posing to myself is, how many of us have heard the first part of the command, love thy neighbor, but we miss the second clause, as thyself? How many of us spend time considering what this means? How many of us knows what it means to actually love ourselves wholly and completely? Let me be clear, I'm not talking about being proud of ourselves. I'm not talking about being impressed with our accomplishments, nor am I talking about finding happiness in personal achievement. I'm talking about the ability to love the person that you know best. Not the one who gets made up every morning. Not the one whom you present to the world. Not the one who's covered in cologne, expensive clothes, who knows all the right filters on social media to conceal blemishes. I'm talking about the person in whom you and I are afraid that never quite measures up. I'm talking about that person whom in the midnight hour keeps us up, counting the sheep of our own self-doubt. That person whom often feels like an imposter, the person in whom you know their vain thoughts and their illicit desires, the person that you know has made some terrible choices that you hope will remain hidden from others. Love your neighbor as yourself, but you don't know myself. So I guess the question I'm asking, I guess the question I'm asking myself this morning, this might not be your issue, is do we give ourselves permission to be anything but overly self-critical? We look at our reflections, too fat, not smart enough, 
too weak, will never be as successful as my classmates. So we cover up, we conceal, we've bought into the myth of meritocracy as if we are the source of all of our goodness and all of our accomplishments. And if we are the source of all of our goodness and all of our accomplishments, then that means that we're also the source of all of our failures and our shortcomings. Thus, there's no room for grace. There's no room for compassion. There's no room for love, only condemnation and concealment. And the more we conceal, the more we self-condemn. Thus, love your neighbor as yourself becomes an impossibility. So it's judge our neighbors as we publicly judge ourselves privately. And might this be the source of our lack of empathy in our world, our inability to love ourselves. One of my favorite movies is a hip-hop classic starring Tupac Shakur. It's a 1992 American crime film entitled Juice. I could tell you've all seen it. <laughs> Tupac plays a troubled teenager named Bishop. He gets pulled into a downward spiral of violence and despair. And at one point, Bishop says to his friend in my G-rated mix, I don't care about you because I don't give a care about myself. I ain't nothing and I ain't ever going to be nothing. And so it's easy for me to just as easily do away with you. And of course, Bishop dies by the end of the movie, a victim of his own life of violence. But his character had already committed soul suicide long before his physical death. Because my brothers and sisters, our lives end the moment we believe that we're not worthy of love. And I suspect this is why Paul is pushing the people back to the first principles of their faith. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to first love the Lord our God with all our heart. And based on that love and acceptance of God, we can begin to love ourselves. More importantly, we can start to see ourselves as God sees us. Ah, God, mm. God doesn't care about our fickle and fleeting social values, nor does God care about our grandiose claims to power. When God looks at us, God sees our fears and our flaws. God sees our imperfections and our ailments. And it's in this most vulnerable state that God then beckons us. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For where you are weak, God is strong. Where we are incomplete, God's love makes us whole. God's love will replace our anxiety with peace. 
our failures with persistence, our frustrations with resilience, our fears with courage, our fatigue with energy, our timidity with tenacity, our indifference with compassion, and our apathy with empathy. But it begins with our ability to see ourselves and then to see others as God sees us. As God's precious child.